This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone all over the world who tunes in. Really, from the bottom of my, of my heart, I so deeply appreciate the time you spend with us, the letters and emails you write in, the suggestions, the guests, all of it, the invitations. Hey, I'm coming to Europe, so I'm going to look up some folks. And today I have a very timely show, some real synchronicity and kismet formed to bring me today's guest, who's really an incredible editor, writer, kind of, uh, I would say, an expert on the ethics of democracy. Also works with Vanderbilt University, but what I've been reading is his book, How to Save Democracy, Advice and Inspiration from 95 World Leaders. There's a link on the episode page. I highly recommend it. I couldn't put it down. It's such a, an honor to welcome my new friend to the show, Mr. Eli Merritt. Thanks for coming on, brother. Great to be with you, Paul. You know, the timing on this is, I'm sure you're keeping up on, on the events what happened yesterday in Tennessee, and how does that alarm you? Will you give your perspective with the uh, two legislatures being expelled and the third missing by one vote? That was actually Representative Johnson, who's been on the show. We've had several people on, like Heidi Campbell, a state senator, and uh, Charlene Oliver, who's now a state senator there. Uh, what's your take on all of this, and do you find it uh, alarming and dangerous? I have uh, two ways of thinking about what happened yesterday in, uh, in Nashville. Uh, my wife and I spent several hours last night actually watching the footage of the, of the uh, expulsion proceedings in the legislature. And my, my two ways of thinking about it are, once it's tragic to see this activity, which is pretty well known in political science as being constitutional hardball, this practice of constitutional hardball by Republicans in the legislature against uh, really very valiant, uh, thoughtful, caring uh, legislatures on the other side. And uh, the other way I think about it is that it is a moment of tremendous hope. I am much more lifted up by what I observed by the fierce passion and decency during that passion of the, the three legislatures, legislators. And so I'm uplifted by it. You know, I've frequently talked and People describe their despair and, you know, ask, ask me, how do you find hope in our current crisis of democracy? And there's lots of ways I find hope. But I tell you what, yesterday we saw something very promising and very young people. So I think what the Republicans have here at most is a Pyrrhic victory. And you're not going to be able to hold back this tide of, uh, of, of, of strength and justice and compassionate care for children and the right to dissent. So I am uplifted by what we saw happen actually in Nashville yesterday. What a beautiful and brilliant countertake. I don't think I've ever seen the younger population so energized, certainly not in that city where I spend a lot of time. Yeah, it's a special thing. We all, it, it's, we all know that the, the baton of democracy and of liberty has to be passed to the next generation. And uh, lots of folks, myself included, feel like that's where the greatest promise of reform is. And we're seeing it before our very eyes. And we're seeing it there. And not incidentally, there are from the Democratic Party. And in everything I do, I really strive to be nonpartisan. And as, as we have encountered extraordinary threats to our democracy over the past, especially seven years, I have found myself becoming less and less uh, partisan to a party and certainly uh, more partisan to the fundamental principles and cornerstones of democracy. And so uh, it's a studied uh, exercise in my life. And really, the Democratic Party today is, uh, with all of its flaws, which are numerous, is a bright, shining beacon for all of us. I am reminded of today of what we're seeing in the weakening and corruption and demagoguery and uh, participation in a cult of, of personality with Trump of the Republican Party. I'm reminded of the 1850s when at that time there was only one party actually that was standing on the right side of history. 
And that was the Republican Party, which was decided to stand firm after years and years of attempt against the expansion of slavery. So that was the barbarism they were standing up against. I think today we might be in a, in a position where the Democratic Party is the great source of strength and promise. That's not to say that uh, I'm an advocate for a one-party system. I'm not. That's dangerous. But someone or some group or some party has to carry us through the myriad crises we're in today. And the Democratic Party is beautifully carrying the banner of the Declaration of Independence and the banner of the rule of law at the highest places where it's most important, and also the banner uh, of ethical leadership. So it's very promising. So they, to me, represent the young generation of the Democratic Party. And uh, I'm, I, I find, again, hope and excitement in the Democratic Party and young people within it. I'm glad you brought that nuance because I hear all the time, oh, both parties are, are the same. They're not. The Republican Party, while it still has that name, is so radically different than, say, Richard Nixon in the 70s, Ronald Reagan in the 80s, and even George Bush. Well, why did it take such a radical turn? And really, it did become a cult and a pro-fascist type of insane asylum. It's really gone off the rails. And I have friends that are longtime Republicans, that are esteemed Republicans, and they feel rather homeless now because they don't feel they have a party to go to. And they're gravitating towards the Democratic Party just because of the lunacy and the anti-democratic actions and rhetoric of, of the Republican Party of today. Well, that, that's your, your understanding of it is very similar to mine. And I like that idea of so many Republicans feeling homeless. And I, I believe what those folks should do is find at least the moral courage to depart the Republican Party. And for some, if, even if it's a temporary period, get behind, if they disagree with 100 things within the Democratic Party, still join the party, get behind this party. And once there is a conservative party that uh, is of, uh, of integrity and ethics, then they can jump out of the Democratic Party again. But of course, what we need to support now is the fundamental uh, cornerstones of, of democracy. And I think of those, I think of democracy as a house, and there's not just one cornerstone, which is the will of the people and free and fair elections. That is one fundamental cornerstone. But I also think of democracy as this house that has other co-equal uh, cornerstones. And those include the rule of law, and checks and balances. And the one that is the most, I think, underestimated and missed is ethical leadership. So those are the things we all need to, I think, wherever we can, get off our partisan high horses and get back to ultimate attachments and devotions to those core cornerstones of democracy, which are not partisan at all. And it is my hope, actually, perhaps the Republican Party can be restored and that's the other thing that Republicans could do if they don't want to jump ship and help a democracy in the Constitution. They could decide to try and reform the Republican Party. I think it might be beyond reform and that what will need to happen is the emergence of a conservative party under the leadership of someone like Liz Cheney. That might not come about until we have numerous uh, crises, perhaps worse than we're experiencing today. But uh, I do believe that the Republican Party, I'll just say one more thing about that. It's often said, you know, well, the Republican Party got sick, and that's what gave rise to Donald Trump. And that's a partial truth. There's no doubt about that. But I think when, when we look at the causation in that way, we've really misunderstood some fundamental lessons and learnings from the entire history of democracy, which extends back to at least the Western tradition to Athens in the 5th century BC. And that is that demagogues, and that's my area of greatest research and writing, that is that demagogues are a very special political actor within democracies, and they are known to corrupt democracies. And I think that's what we've seen. We've begun with the corruption by uh, Trump through his demagoguery, which again is, is, is the practice of bigotry and fear-mongering and hate-mongering and scapegoating as a means for that demagogue to gain fame and power. There has nothing to do with ethical leadership, has nothing to do with helping the democracy. But I do believe human beings are very vulnerable. We 
we often describe democracies vulnerable, but those individuals within a party are in fact smart ones, educated ones are vulnerable to the cult of personality. So I think the greatest poison, this is to say, the greatest poison is Trump and disinformation in general, uh, uh, not necessarily the, the problem is a, a decrepit culture and that's how where, where our problems have emerged. The demagogues, demagogue can bring down a democracy, whereas uh, political leaders of, of, of integrity and deep ethics can lift it up and reconstruct and repair a democracy. Why is fascism so attractive to so many? For me, it's always been repulsive, even when I was young, but even more so now. Why are the masses drawn to fascism? And I would have to think they don't read history, because if you follow history, it's a, almost like a suicidal death sentence to bring that on your own republic, your own self. I think your, your, your statement there uh, about uh, succumbing to fascism as an activity that takes place for those who don't read history or who read very biased history is correct. Here's how I think of, uh, of fascism and its relationship to democracy. So actually the pro progression of what we can think of with some nuance as a healthy functioning democracy to perhaps authoritarianism or fascism there is, again, as history demonstrates, an intermediary phase of destructive demagoguery. So the idea, uh, well, I'll, I'll say that Alexander Hamilton, you know, has a theory, and I've spoken about this. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's, I call it Alexander Hamilton's theory of democratic collapse. President begins a demagogue and ends a tyrant. That's from Federalist First. But you, if you inject enough poisonous demagoguery and disinformation into a democracy, as we're experiencing today in our democracy, the people become very polarized and they become very afraid. And most significantly, as is also discussed, there's a perception that those on the other side are a mortal threat, an existential threat to the democracy and or to, or to the values of those on the other side. And so you, you fall into a period of absolute chaos and you become what I think of as a demagogic democracy. And then there is some appeal in all that chaos and all that mayhem and all that sense of existential threat. There is some appeal in the leader who will come about and say, I tell you what, give me absolute power and I'll, I'll quiet this whole situation. You may have to give up some of your rights, but we will restore order in our society. But the problem with fascism, obviously, even if it does engender order, is it stripped you of all your rights, all your humanity, and all the opportunities to grow and self-actualize as a person. One of my favorite people from history is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he said that democracy never had to fear fascism as long as it delivered on the promises of democracy. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's also an ingredient to why we are where we are today. I don't think democracy has been delivering since the 80s with uh, flatlining wages and the transfer of $50 trillion up to the 1% from the bottom part of the country. People can't afford healthcare, housing, college suddenly is unaffordable. Most Americans don't have $400 for an emergency. This is like mold in the attic, and that's where you get the dangerous black mold that can grow and kill you. I like that, and and I I, I agree with that in a way that does remind me of sort of the cultural or economic uh, argument or explanation for the problems, the troubles we're having today. And that it, it's it's interesting you say that's FDR, of course, and that's also Biden's um, dominant argument is we need we must make democracy deliver. And that is the way that we will rescue democracy. And again, what we what we always live in is partial truths. Um, I, I do think people have suffered deprivation and challenge and economic inequality. I, I believe in fighting these fiercely, but I do actually believe, to use your wonderful metaphor, the black mold in the attic is actually uh, is is disinformation, and again demagoguery and its corruption and this tendency towards authoritarianism. So I think there are things we need to push towards and fight for. And there are those things that you have mentioned. 
And at the same time, a bit more critically, actually, in my view, there are things we must push against and exclude from the heart and soul of our democracy. And again, I've mentioned disinformation, and then we, of course, parse that even more to, well, what type of disinformation? And I'm uh, a week ago before Trump was indicted, I've been talking a lot about the worst problem we have in our democracy today is disinformation specifically about elections, which everyone will relate to. But now, since the indictment, I'm adding to that another great peril, which is disinformation about the rule of law. So, but I'd say that uh, the, 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 the worst dark mold that you can possibly put in the attic <laughs> is a, a authoritarian demagogue in the White House. So this is a tremendous, tremendous danger. We have experienced what political scientists and political philosophers since the, the Greeks and Romans have written about. And I do think we, there's a lot to reform, but we do need to carefully consider uh, our presidential nominating system. And we must figure out systems, no matter what they are, we must figure out systems to prevent demagogues and authoritarians from attaining executive power. That's the first priority, I believe, we have as a nation to protect our rights and freedoms. Piggybacking on all that, which I agree with, how much damage has Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, and that night crew done over the last 40 years to our democracy and continues to do literally as we speak? <laughs> well, I thought we were talking about my favorite subject, uh, talking about you know Trump as a demagogue that falls into authoritarianism, but oh, brother. Fox News has the most salient example of, uh, of demagogic um, right-wing media. It's, the damage is inestimable. Uh, what, if you imagine Trump trying to run for office, uh, you know, even if he has an audience of 15,000 or 30,000, I mean, it's nothing. It's a... You know, it's a demagogue riling up a crowd, but then you add, <clears throat> then you add the megaphone of Fox News, which instead of uh, as a media outlet, which is in my view entirely responsible for ethical behavior and caretaking of our uh, of our democracy, I've written a piece in which I said the problem, specifically um, uh, alluding to Fox News, the problem is. We, the people, have allowed the watchdogs to become demagogues. So, of course, those uh, anchors you're talking about, they, they would qualify 10 out of 10 as, as demagogues. So Fox News has done inordinate damage. Obviously, Trump, Trump never would have become president of the United States, and this is important to recognize, if we had a more effective presidential nominating system. And Trump never would have become president of the United States and that's important, obviously, because he achieved that power and became more authoritarian. He never would have become president of the United States if not for Fox News and other conservative media. And of course, that all began um, in the late 1980s with the revocation of the Fairness Doctrine, rise of Rush Limbaugh, and it's all it all connects. You know, without. Smart people have said without Limbaugh, we never would have gotten Fox News. And without Fox News, we never would have gotten Donald Trump. So here again, we have some promise in the rule of law. Defamation cases, lawsuits are, are the stock and trade of, of the American nation. And so the Dominion Voting Systems case against Fox is a step in the right direction. And also we've had uh, courageous uh, legislatures come out and act publicly demand that Fox News uh, stop spreading lies and tell the people the truth and, in fact, apologize. That was um, Chuck Schumer and, and Hakeem Jeffries um, in the Congress who wrote a really powerful letter, I think. And I, I emphasize that not to say, wow, these two legislatures can write a letter and affect change. But that idea of demanding we, the people, can, if nothing else, stand up and demand what we believe in and, and to come back to the Tennessee protest and legislators that we were discussing earlier, that's what's happened there. Look at these young protesters outside the, the, the legislative building in Nashville demanding change. And that takes us, of course, into the area of dissent and protest, which is another beautiful organ of, uh, of pushing democracy forward 
and healing our worst problems. Is the United States really a democracy or is it an, an oligarchy? You read that Princeton study, I'm sure. Uh, well, I think what we, it, it would depend on when you're looking it, it, in history, you know, for the civil rights movement, we might say one thing. And if we go back before Trump, uh, I'd probably evaluate that we were a relatively healthy functioning democracy. And how I evaluate it is less important than all of these many indices, um, uh, democracy indices that compare us and give numerical uh, grades to the state of our democracy. And we have been uh, viewed to be in the top 10 or 15 healthy democracies in the world until the era of Trump and specifically uh, after, uh, after the January 6th uh, assault on the Capitol. So uh, I think you're making allusion there to is, is ultimately is what are we a democracy where the people have equal vote or is actually money in politics carrying, carrying the day? I think you've got a good point to make there. And so there, there again, we have a, a, an area of remarkably important reform to embark upon. And the painful part of it all is I've observed in the lives of individuals and myself and in larger groups that systems, whether it's the system of an individual brain or the system of a group of people or a democracy or a country, tend to change only in the crucible of crisis. And I don't like to we'll have crisis, but I think we should ready ourselves, push, push very hard and nonviolent protest of all manner today, but we should also be preparing ourselves for what type of reforms we do want to see take place when the system breaks further, therefore hopefully opening up a, a door of opportunity for reform. Biden says, folks, I think that's his favorite word, isn't it? Folks, democracy, democracy, democracy is resilient. And I think he misses a piece there. Uh, you know, democracy is resilient, but only when we reform it. And unfortunately, we have to be ready during times of crisis to do that. And again, that brings us back to Tennessee yesterday. The protests going on, they come from an unimaginable crisis of young children being shot in school. Uh, so the, I think the, the road ahead is tough. But again, I would say that I, I have a lot of faith. I've never appreciated the Democratic Party as much as I have in the past several years. You also mentioned the coup, which I, which I plan to uh, ask you about. I call it the coup, the January 6th, they call it the insurrection. Or as some would say on the Fox News, just some tourists who wandered into the Capitol that day to look around and maybe spread some feces on the walls and steal a laptop. But when you watched that, Eli, what went through your heart and mind to see America literally overrun? Not only that, instigated and encouraged by the President of the United States and others. Well, you're right to call it a coup. There is no question from the perspective of, of political science analysis to be even more technical. It is referred to as an auto coup. So if anyone doubts that, just you know, Google that and you will see that this has happened in countries uh, throughout history and is, uh, is common in the past 50 years in many countries in the world. So that day for me, Wow, I was, you know, in a way, I'm glad we had cable TV then. We don't have live cable TV now. Um, I don't know how, it, I probably got an, uh, a breaking news email from uh, the New York Times and then turned on CNN where I was stunned. The first thing I did was I left the room and I went to my two sons. This was during the pandemic and they were both learning remotely. They were both in class. And I said, tell your teacher you have to go now. Do not question what I'm saying. Tell your teacher you have to go. Because I wanted these children to see this historic event. So it was a historic tragedy. But it, 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 as you're saying, I was stunned and couldn't believe what I was seeing. But I was not surprised, as, as a lot of people are. I've actually been concerned for some time that, I mean, uh, to, to, to repeat a word that I do believe we should bring back deeply into the lexicon of political conversation. Trump is a demagogue, and demagogues are famous for inciting violence using demagoguery. There's a true art to what demagogues do. They do have a true genius. They do have a true brilliance, and particularly someone in a high post like Trump who can get a bevy of lawyers around him saying, oh no, be careful, you can't say that because you might be found criminally liable later. But it was unsurprising 
and tragic. And but there's another day, you know, Paul, that to me was even more tragic than that day. And I think the date was February 13th, uh, 2021. And that day was so tragic because now in the second impeachment of Donald Trump, after an obvious incitement of of a coup of violence against the peaceful transfer of power in the Senate, 57, to their credit, seven seven or so Republicans crossed over, but it took 10 more senators on that day, February 13th, 2021, with the vote of 10 more senators, an incredible aid, I don't want to say cure, but a remarkable sort of act of salvation to our democracy could have taken place because less important for Trump to be convicted as he was leaving office. But the next vote after that could have been and should have been permanent disqualification from future federal office. I consider that to be one of the greatest failures of the Congress of, 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 of a political institution, meaning the Republican Party in this case, in all United States history. And these people who were cowards literally were cowering behind locked doors with the guards and their guns drawn because the mob that he incited was, they were desperately trying to kill these people. And even then they showed how corrupt, wrong for office they are. I mean, that, like you, was almost unimaginable at that point. Yes, and then uh, it's it's remarkable to watch, you know, human nature and group psychology in action uh, because that day and even the next day what we saw was this softening and this awakening within so many of the Republican leaders where McConnell said, or, or, or Lindsey Graham, I can't remember which one said, you know, I'm done with this, it's been a nice ride. Uh, but then the desperate attachment to party, which has become poisoned by the cult of personality of Trump took control of their brains. I don't mean to say that they're puppets and they don't have uh, free will and free volition. They do. But we do know from a very smart book, uh, Profiles in Courage, written by JFK, that there's cases in that, in fact, of senators of eight, eight or eight or 10 senators who are profiles in courage. But one of the most remarkable points that JFK makes in the introduction is, wow, this stuff uh, profiles in courage and political courage to, to run against party is exceedingly rare. Uh, but we, but this was a case when we should have had far more moral courage. And this, there's just a, there's, there's a disease of, I think, of, of partisanship, putting party above country, that obviously is one of the most significant areas that we need to educate uh, people about. So, but I just want to re-emphasize that that is one of the most painful days in U.S. history for me. Uh, this is a slight detour because the Tennessee expulsion was triggered by the school shooting at the Covenant School, where I had been staying a mile away for three months, and a lot of friends live in that neighborhood, and it really was uh, traumatic on so many levels. Uh, and I can't even imagine for the parents or or the kids there. You are a parent. You mentioned that you have two children. How do you cope with the uniquely American phenomena, dark phenomena, that uh, your children might be shot at a school? Or really, anybody could be shot anywhere. I'm not a parent, but as a parent, Eli, how do you incorporate that and sleep soundly at night or when they go to school during the day? It's kind of a lottery that it just won't happen to you or them. Well, that's a great question. Uh, and my sister actually lives uh, half a mile from the school. Uh, how can I explain explain the way I cope with this? I'll try and do it succinctly because I do have a way. And it really comes from, I shared with you, Paul, that in 2018 is when I turned full-time into the writing of history and, and political commentary. And before that, I practiced psychiatry for 20 years. And as a product of the practice of psychiatry, I did mainly psychotherapy. And the textbook that was most important to me uh, was called Existential Psychotherapy, written by a professor that I got to know briefly, who is uh, 
uh, still alive and well, though on up there in age at Stanford named Irv Yalom. And, uh, you know, one of the fundamental principles of existential psychotherapy or existential philosophy is that we need to carry death on our shoulder everywhere we go. And somehow that helps us, helps us to find anchorage and meaningfulness and gratitude in every day. So I've had to, you know, I, I think that what gives me calm and feelings of groundedness is simply to recognize the truth. And I have one son now who's uh, in ninth grade and another who's in his freshman year of college. And colleges are also under threat. And we just simply have to tie ourselves to reality. And that reality is that one of them, you know, could die. Uh, and fortunately, uh, gun violence is, is not uh, at the top of the list of the way people of this age die. There's drownings and disease or others. But you have to envision reality and accept reality and recognize that we can lose those that we love at any moment. So that's, I think it starts with accepting our own uh, fragility and the fact that you or I, Paul, could be dead tomorrow. We hope not. But there's something about recognizing that, being able to being able to move into that deep existential space, which is just reality. And somehow when you move through that, and I've had some grief surrounding that type of thinking, you come out the other side with, with much less anxiety. Brilliant life wisdom there. And I actually practice meditation and regularly contemplate my mortality in form and think about it constantly, not in a morbid way or I'm not obsessed with it, but I find it infuses the moment, the day with uh, carpe diem, seize the moment, and it increases the value of everything, the urgency, and the it prioritizes what you really want to do. I've been actually thinking lately, uh, if I say to people, I say, you have 10 years to live, they go, wow. But if I say you have 3,600 days to live, you literally viscerally see them change, that all of a sudden there's an urgency there. And we don't know if we have 3,600 minutes. This is it. Make sure you're doing what you love with the people you love. Let them know. And then live accordingly. Yes. My only question is, what's a young man like you, Paul, doing thinking about uh, your mortality? <laughs> I, I have too many climate scientists on the show. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, you know, as part, of, as part of this, I'll just tell a little bit more about myself. I was confronted with a, a kind of a deep experience of mortality at a very young age. My mother died by suicide when I was six years old. And so what happened then is you, you, you rapidly recover because the mind or heart of a six-year-old is not, as I, as I discovered from research, is not able to cope with the enormousness of death, certainly, but then you get this absolutely perplexing form of death, which is suicide. So it was in my early 20s that I fell into depression, which I prefer to think of as grief, and a profound identity crisis that was the beginnings of the journey of working through the trauma, grief, and later in life, in fact, the shame that surrounded my, um, my mother's uh, death and way of death. And the reason I brought this up is because this idea of existential journey and existential thinking and, and just a recognition of the, of the importance of thinking about and recognizing the fragility of, of life. I, I began speaking to my children at a very young age about existential topics and the prospect of death and what would happen to them if something happened to uh, their mother and myself. So I don't, I don't believe it's ever too early was the reason I brought that up, even though you are a young man, Paul. <laughs> I, I don't think it's ever, ever too early to begin to bring into the lives in a gentle and confident manner the real truth about human existence, which involves all of these topics. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful and authentic and vulnerable. And in my 20s, ironically... I crashed and burned, had major depression, and was not suicidal like with a gun or anything on the table. Couldn't figure out how to exit this place without killing myself, and I was sort of stumped. I didn't really want to die as much as I was in like a lot of pain, and I felt 
in hindsight, I, or I feel in hindsight, I look back in hindsight, is that it was a, a breakdown in the sense that also facilitated a breakthrough only because of certain choices. I sought out counseling. I sought out healers. I discovered meditation. I did some real deep dives. And I felt like I was grieving humanity in the world. That's still an ongoing process. But now I can ride that wave without it holding me under and you know keep me down too long. I let the feelings pass through me. I don't fight them. And I also feel they're normal. If you're not sad about school shootings or the environment or your parents passing or anything, I, you must be heavily medicated because that's what we're here to do is to feel everything. And so I know we have a lot of worldwide listeners. I know we have younger people, older people, but if you're younger and a lot of younger people I know are struggling, that's normal and healthy. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. That's the shame part you talked about. So, but there are ways, productive, healthy ways to find the higher ground and in the process as you obviously did and i'm fortunate enough to have done you actually come out of it a lot better and it gives life a great perspective and a a deeply enriching way i subscribe it's 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 wonderful to discover it you and i i feel uh, and so many other human beings have that similar journey and i um i subscribe to the concept that you expressed, and in fact, I think that's exactly the same language I've used with myself and maybe with others in the past, that the breakdown became a breakthrough. And so what, what we what we have there, I think, in your experience and mine, if you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is this uh, event that is described today in American society and in American uh, psychiatry as depression, a depressive episode begins, but then at the heart and soul of that depression, and I believe all depression, and this is something I, I really want to get back to at some point, at the heart and soul of depression, the core thing going on is an identity crisis and a grieving experience. And I know for certain, based upon my experience as a psychiatrist, but also due to the literature, that these breakdowns can go, I guess, one of three ways. Uh, are, they, can, they can worsen and lead to worsening dysfunction, or they can remain the same, or they can lead to breakthrough. Uh, that's documented in the, in the psychiatric literature. So what we want, as you found and I found, is, and I found it through uh, similar pathways that you did, really recognizing what was, what was most important in life, to recognizing what matters most to think about the name of your podcast, and that was relationships and meaningful work in life. And then I also sought psychotherapy, but also had really remarkable pastoral counseling uh, back in the 20s that was very helpful to me. But what's fascinating is this model of uh, it can, a breakdown can either lead to breakthrough or to deterioration, I think is also true of democracies. So I think we are at a point right now very similar where our democracy is, has broken down into grief and identity crisis. And I, I, think in, I think the model point of comparison is a good one. And we can either come out of this stronger, which would be the pathway that the Democratic Party is advocating of, is so passionately behind. And that what gives me so much hope is progress. We are going to push through to a freer, more uh, multi-ethnic um, and multi-racial, multi-gender future. Uh, so that's the direction that we need to go. But then also sometimes I think democratic systems, as we've seen as well, can deteriorate and be overtaken by authoritarianism. So I'm I'm hopeful we'll work it out. I don't know what the timeline is, but I love that comparison of the group psychology to the individual psychology. I like it too. With time, I see so much of the universe as a hologram over and over again, that the micros, the macro and speaking of the whole, the society, a democracy, what are some of the healthy principles, exercises, and practices that you garnered through this beautiful and brilliant book that you would share with the worldwide listener audience? Because we do have a lot of world leaders who listen. Not We've had presidents of countries on, but I know a lot listen in ministries and things like that, and even guys on Wall Street and mayors and congresspeople, Tim Ryan, who's been on several times is a listener, U.S. congressman who ran for president and senator. Uh, what principles for a healthy democracy uh, 
uh, would you share with us? I'll, I'll, I'll share a, a short formula with you that actually got a little more complicated uh, when, when I was confronted with the fact of being invited on your podcast. And I, I was told the name of it was What Matters Most. And I said, what matters most, as, as I mentioned to you, Paul, it's very provocative, one of the best titles of any podcast or book I've ever known. So the, the formula that I have come to after uh, many years of grappling with what we need for our democracies to be is this, uh, a quick tangent. You know, the word democracy is somewhat, is somewhat deceiving because it's a simple system where the people go into a forum and they vote on everything. Uh, they vote, they, it's what's called direct democracy. In any event, the formula I've been talking about is that democracy is not enough, and then constitutional democracy is not enough. What we really need is ethical constitutional democracy, that that is sort of the formula for political happiness. But upon further reflection, thinking about what matters most, I've, I'm now, now reformed that and added to it, what matters most is ethical constitutional democracy rooted in malice towards none and charity for all, which many people will recognize as uh, a quotation from uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address. Thinks that I'm a big believer in mantras. I'm a big believer in, in formulas because we because we get disoriented as human beings. We need to constantly bring ourselves back to what matters and what we believe is uh, the helm that we should hold on to in order to proceed into stormy weather and stormy waters. And so to come back to the Democratic Party, I, I would wish it on the Republican Party as well. But one of my greatest fears is that for the future is that the Democratic Party will decide they're going to fight fire with fire and they're going to descend into the disinformation and, and demagoguery of the Republican Party. That's my biggest fear. We can't do that. So what the Democratic Party has to do is to hold tight to ethical constitutional democracy rooted in malice towards none and charity for all. I think that will do it. <laughs> I would think one of the pillars of that sort of society would have to be the rule of law. The same rules apply to everybody. If you're on the Supreme Court and you break the law, you are impeached. You have criminal consequences, the same if you're the president. Or if, uh, unfortunately, uh, some of the poorer people who are punished harshly for misdemeanor crimes while white-collar criminals walk free, I feel like that erodes a democracy in faith and trust and participation. You have to have the rule of law and have it be liberally and vigorously applied. Yes, you're, you're singing... My singing my song, which I inherited directly from my father, who uh, was a lawyer, and then he was a federal prosecutor in Middle Tennessee under the Johnson administration, and then he was a federal judge for 44 years. He just passed away a little over a year ago. And he, I grew up with this principle more than any others of the rule of law, which you can understand, or a, a reasonable judge would say that. But I think that's exactly where we are. There are fundamental um, fundamental cornerstones, uh, again, to, to comment on the ones that I believe are most fundamental. It's the will of the people and free and fair elections and the rule of law and checks and balances and ethical leadership. And then the metaphor doesn't really work, but these four cornerstones are constantly interacting with one another and affecting one another. So this the rule of law is very threatened now by Trump, followed by Fox News, followed by the Republican Party. Uh, so that's the, one of the great problems we have to solve going forward in the future is disinformation. And then you get into the slippery slope of we need to manage speech. We need to manage free speech in our free societies. Now, most people aren't even willing to talk about that because we because free speech is so sacrosanct. But what happens when free speech, which is the lifeblood of democracy, what happens when it becomes poison? I, it, it, I just can't work. The body politic is going to get sicker and sicker. Um, so we have a lot of those problems to solve, but through innovate, and then we think of the deep fakes that are going on and all the AI, 
we have it's it's exciting and fascinating to be honest with you. It's also a little terrifying. So we just have to keep pushing forward and use our creativity as human beings to stay ahead of our problems. And now I'm 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 made to think of um, one of the quotations from the first summit for democracy. I think it was Charles Michel, who's the president of the European Council, that correctly says, you know, we have this digital transformation profound that's happening in our society right now. And he said, we must make sure that the digital transformation has a net positive effect on democracy, not a net negative effect. So we have to make certain of that, even if we have to alter our understanding of what is incitement of violence, what is defamation, what is hate speech. So uh, those are some of the challenges that we have. It is, again, remarkable to live in this time and see what's going on with technology and how it's ahead of us, but hopefully we will get ahead of it at some point. I'm glad you brought up the technological part, and I do want to offer my uh, blessings and uh, condolences for the loss of your father. At having lost my dad a couple of years ago, that is, to me, an ongoing grieving process. I was fortunate enough to have a deep, lifelong love affair with him. He was 94 when he passed with me by his side, and uh, I miss them every day. And with every passing day, my appreciation grows deeper, deeper, and I just so admire them. I wish I had had that capacity as a young boy. I guess you can't, but at least I did get to tell them often for many years how great they were. And I'm glad that you had a long time relationship with your dad too. That's a cornerstone. I feel like for a, a successful life. Yes. Uh, yeah. You're this, the, the, these are the biggest topics uh, of all ultimately. And uh, I had um, profound grief over my father. And even as you talk about him, I can feel a little tear well up in my eye. But what's beautiful is, is he gave me so much to live out. And so in fact, I would not be on this podcast with you today. If he hadn't brought me up saying, we must always hand down the spirit of liberty to the next generation. He did that with me. I'm doing that with my children and then trying to do that with anyone who's interested in listening. Well, he lives on in your teachings. A little bit of a metaphysical question. Uh, has he ever come back to you like in a dream or sensed you? Mine, fortunately, mine do. My dad was with me last night, actually, in a very joyous encounter. And and I've had people on who, mediums and things like that, that it's a thin veil. And I remember once I even asked him because we met for dinner. And then I realized at dinner that I was there, not here. And I said, God, I guess we're meeting a dream. And he said, well, to be more accurate, this is an interdimensional interaction. And we're wearing our costumes so we recognize each other. And that always stuck with me. And thank God I remembered it. Uh, have you had been fortunate enough yet to uh, sometimes only come once or at all? Well, you're, you're, I'm almost certain uh, my father uh, passed away uh, at the beginning of uh, 2022. And so that's not long ago. I, I don't, I can't right now recall a dream, but I am recalling uh, texting my brother and sister about a dream that I had. So I don't remember the content of it right now. But in a somewhat similar fashion, I think there is this sense of this thing we talk about the spirit. <laughs> I do have a sense of the presence of my of father's spirit very, very frequently. And, and you know, we, as we understand childhood, uh, development and even, I guess, adult development. You know, there's this process of internalization of significant attachments in our life, and, and frankly, they become part of us. And as we just discussed, so that's I think a very beautiful kind of a concept of not immortality. That's not the right word, but the living on through others is a very real thing uh, because we do internalize them and their values, and of course, their way of treating us whether that's with compassion or not. So I feel like I'm the better part of compassion for the most part. So I feel very fortunate about that. And like your father beautifully said, I feel like this is what your work's about. This is what I'm trying to do with the show, or at least try through my own efforts to leave it more beautiful, even slightly, than if I wasn't here. Because I feel like I've so much has been given, so much I feel like is then required 
as like the rent we play on earth for the air we breathe. Someone said that once uh, and not martyrdom or it's to me, it's an honor to be in a position, the privileged position to give anything, to serve in the fine ones niche. And then just try to like this 1100 something shows we've done. It's small in the scheme of eternity or even today in the world, but to just, Hey, there's a little corner there with a buffet that, hopefully just shined a little light maybe in a place that had been a little darker before we came along. I see that in you as a teacher. My mother was a school teacher and they kind of instilled that in me too. always do the right thing, pay it forward, give more than you take. And it's, you're, you're just so lucky to be alive and to have been born in this country. They were very patriotic. Try to be a light in the world and, and not, you know, not a parasite. Yes. You emphasize in, in what, in your, what you just remarked, this question of, of giving, and I've been reflecting quite a bit on that. We, we all of us, every one of us, for one thing, I think <clears throat> we don't recognize how important we are because we are constantly giving um, into the world in our relationships with others. So but that's an ultimate critical question, I think, for all people and certainly for anyone who is, as many people are, are exploring what can I do to help our democracy? So that idea that looking in the mirror, I think it's very valuable to say, well, you know, what am, what am I giving out into the world? And so I think we can all serve uh, if we, so if it's society, if you're looking for meaningful work, it's the same thing. If you're looking to serve your community, it's the same thing. If you're looking to serve your democracy, it's the same thing. It's this question of what am I giving out? And so, we don't want to be giving out the disinformation and demagoguery of, of Trump. I'll, I'll come back to really what I probably more important than giving out helpful ideas or concepts. They're important, but I really am very focused on in my life, uh, giving out malice towards none and charity for all. And I'll say that obviously I think the wisest, most thoughtful people, in world history have said somewhat of the same thing. And my favorite moment in the first summit for democracy, which is quoted in the book, uh, is uh, the prime minister of Barbados, former prime minister now. Her name was Mia Amor, which is wonderful, Motley. And she said, you know, the secret to the success of a democracy is you. we have to see one another and hear one another and care about one another. So that's something, that's hard. <laughs> and I am talking about the person on the other side of the aisle, very hard work. But if people are looking for something to do to help their community, their democracy, I would say that's it. That's something you can do in your own emotional, spiritual journey in life. And if you accomplish dominantly giving out malice towards Don and charity for all, you will have accomplished a remarkable, beautiful thing. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.